Welcome to the Doll Podcast. I'm your host, Louisa Maxwell. My guest is Bradley Justice Yarborough, author and expert on all things Barbie doll. Bradley has amassed an impressive archive of first-hand interviews and accounts of the story behind the creation of this pop culture legend. Bradley, welcome to the Doll Podcast. Thanks for having me back, Louisa. It's always a pleasure to share my love and passion of the Barbie doll. Oh, I really enjoy talking to you about Barbie because I find out so much detail about her background and creation and how this amazing doll came into being. Of course, Barbie's story starts in the 1950s with Ruth Handler of Mattel and her inspiration to create a fashion doll for a new generation of little girls. Her doll, Barbie, became one of the best-selling toys in the world. But when Barbie was launched in 1959, toy buyers thought she was too grown up and would not sell. What did Mattel do? They took their innovative new doll straight to their audience, children. Bradley, how did Mattel go straight to kids to introduce Barbie doll? Well, Louisa, for years leading up to the introduction of Barbie, Mattel had advertised directly to children. They advertised on the Saturday morning cartoons, and they also were one of the exclusive advertisers for the Mickey Mouse Club. Their advertising agency that they pretty much exclusively used was the Carson Roberts Advertising Agency, and they had convinced Mattel that instead of just advertising around holiday time and Christmas and gift-giving seasons and that sort of thing, that they should advertise 52 weeks a year. And so um, where other toy manufacturers didn't, you know, children were being advertised to, and they were receiving lots of Mattel commercials every day after school and on the weekend. So they were, they were inundated with Mattel commercials. You know, as a child, you think these commercials are just amazing. At the time, we have to remember that teenage music, TV, and fashion were creating a new pop culture. And enter Barbie, a doll with the latest ponytail style and a wardrobe of fashionable clothes. Her fashions had themes, singer, fashion designer, teacher, and eventually even an astronaut, taking each child on their own adventure. What was the reaction of parents to this new type of doll? I think parents were probably divided. I think there were many that felt that Barbie was far too grown up and too adult looking for children to play with. But I think there were other parents that were fascinated by the tiny details and accessories and all of the quality that was Barbie. I'm sure children felt that she looked like a movie star or their favorite cousin or, you know, somebody grown up. So It really led children into this play pattern that Ruth Handler had imagined of sort of adult role play of of children acting out grown up situations and having this tool to kind of emulate those situations. So let's describe one of the original advertisements. And good news, you can see some of the original Barbie doll adverts on our website. Bradley has been kind enough to share a lot of images with us, and you can see them at www dollpodcast.com. So in one of the original advertisements, the camera goes in for a close-up on the face of a brunette doll wearing a bridal veil. The camera pans out and now we see her bridal gown in its full splendor. She's surrounded by elegant Barbie dolls, all wearing elaborate fashions, 
perfect down to the tiniest detail. The orchestra strikes up and the song, Barbie, you're beautiful. You make me feel my Barbie doll is really real. That must have been so magical for children in the 50s, especially, you know, preteen girls. Was Barbie the first fashion doll to be advertised on TV? I don't think she was. There were other quote-unquote fashion dolls done by companies like Ideal and American Character with the Little Miss Revlon doll and the Tony doll that were fashion dolls with wardrobes. But they were advertised in a slightly different way, more of a sort of a gimmicky kind of like, you know, come in and buy this fashion doll. It wasn't selling this lifestyle and sort of image and cachet like with Barbie. That commercial you describe really makes everybody want to go out and get this doll. I mean, there's there's like magic and it's Hollywood and it's it's just glamour. And I think any child seeing that had to be just completely enamored. It was just a beautiful even a catchy tune. I mean, there was every element about that commercial was amazing. But Louisa, that's not the first Barbie commercial. What? The first Barbie commercial wasn't done by the Carson Roberts Advertising Agency. It was actually done by the Harris Tuchman Advertising Agency that was headed by Fran Harris Tuchman. And she, along with a other group of women had been pioneers in television with sort of an all-woman sort of group that kind of kept television on the air during the war in the Chicago area and would later launch this wonderful advertising agency. And they were charged with doing the original Barbie commercial. I had never really thought that anything prior to the commercial you described existed until my colleague, a. Glenn Mandeville, who is sort of the pioneer of the fashion doll collecting world, he's written books and articles and continues to write to this day, had told me one day that, Bradley, I remember a different commercial from when I was a kid. And he went on to describe this commercial. And sometimes you kind of have to question, does an eight-year-old you really remember what you saw? But in great detail, he described this and pointed out one element was that they pointed out a detail, and it was Barbie's charm bracelet. And I'm like, well, you know what? If that detail stuck with him, there must be something to it. And another friend of mine had found a group of commercials on 8mm reels that had been sent out to be used by television stations and had found a Barbie commercial in that and thought, Bradley, this looks so different than what I've ever seen. And he sent it to me to inspect, and we had it converted so we could actually watch it. And it's a very different commercial. The dolls in the commercial that you've described look like number four Barbies to me. They have the curved eyebrows. And the dolls in the commercial my friend sent to me are definitely number one and number two Barbies with the arched eyebrows and a really kind of different look. So we know that this is a much earlier commercial. And in that commercial, when I saw it, in the middle of the commercial, the announcer points out, and look at all of these details, including Barbie's charm bracelet. So I knew that that added validity to what Glenn had told me. Well, there's nothing also like childhood memory. I mean, millions of children must have seen and been delighted at that commercial. So they can't be wrong. And then, of course, A. Glenn Mandeville is a Barbie legend. I have so many of his books on my shelves, and I refer to them all the time. So 
it's good enough for me. And I'm delighted that you're going to be sharing these images with us and that we'll all be able to see it. Well, I'm excited to share them because it really is a glimpse into the past, sort of like peeking into Alibaba's cave or something and seeing a treasure that everyone has sort of forgotten about. The advertisement that you've discovered and that Glenn remembered feature number one Barbies, all in a miniature-sized world. Who were the team of talented designers and producers behind these features? Well, there were a lot of people with Carson Roberts that had to create these sets and prepare the whole sort of like production of creating this. The person that would do the storyboards was Cynthia Lawrence. And Cynthia Lawrence was a great artist and she created the story that kind of told the script of how the commercial was going to go. Then you also add in announcers, but it was Mattel themselves that provided the doll and the product. And many of these dolls that appear in these commercials are very different than the production dolls. There's a little extra pizzazz to the makeup. You see some hand-painted faces. And we know that the early dolls have these side-glance eyes. And in many of the Barbie commercials, including some of my favorites, the doll's eyes are painted looking forward. So there's a distinct different sort of look to the dolls and the costumes that are being worn in these commercials. And those were all supplied by the Mattel designers. That's really interesting because rather than Barbie being an object we look at as she looks away with the side glance, if she looks directly into the camera and at the child or at the viewer, she's really engaging with her audience and selling the product. Well, I totally agree. It's it's unique to kind of study those commercials in great detail and just notice how they create the subtle movement and the whole idea They really are selling sort of a lifestyle for your doll. There's one where Barbie and Midge are fashion models and sent to Paris. And there's just a little background of French music. And, you know, they've created this set of like a Paris street scene with the Eiffel Tower in the background. And I, I just think that, you know, if you were a child seeing this, you wanted to recreate that on your living room floor and and have your Barbie and Midge head off to Paris. I think that sounds like a lot of fun. I remember as a child that often the Barbie commercials inspired me. I mean, back then it was Malibu Barbie. It was a whole little world for children. There was a whole play pattern set forth by the advertising of just showing kind of like how you could create an adventure, where you could create the adventure. So there was a whole way of of life shared in, in those commercials and the interaction with playing with your friends. A lot of that was not only done with the dolls, but by the actors and actresses that portrayed the characters in this commercial, many of which, if you're a pop culture or were alive in the 60s and 70s and 80s, you will recognize because we have Maureen McCormick that was advertising The Living Barbie, who would go on to play Marsha Brady on The Brady Bunch, and her TV sister, Jan Brady, who was... Eve Plum did the commercial for the Talking Barbie. As a child of the 70s, I distinctly remember Little House on the Prairie, and even Melissa Gilbert did um, some of the Barbie commercials. If you weren't appearing in the commercial, there always was a voiceover or sort of an announcer. And if you ever did the Top 40 Countdown and listened to Casey Kasem, he was the announcer in many of those commercials. So it's an interesting element that you know, 
the Barbie commercials are sort of star-studded and full of, you know, just people of that era and of that moment. They're full of pop culture, they're full of memories, but they're capturing something. And imagine that Casey Kasem, who's doing the top 10 every week, is also telling the story about one of the top-selling dolls of all time. Along with the actors and the toys, um, in the commercials, you also have the music. The 60s had this sort of orchestrated music. The 70s had like this sort of disco music. And in the late 70s and early 80s, they changed it up a little bit and added sort of a version of the Seekers, an Australian folk band. They did a song called Georgie Girl, and they remodified that using the tune, but they turned it into Hey There, Barbie Girl. And they used that for many years with many different products. And all of my friends from that generation, if you bring that up, they can sing you any one of those songs about the Barbie pretty perfume maker or the, the, the Barbie star traveler or Beauty Secrets Barbie, they all remember those songs distinctly. Or Barbie's Country Camper. That one's going through my head now. Sadly, we can't sing any of them for you listeners because we'd have to pay royalties. <laughs> Bradley, Mattel were very clever because they launched Barbie doll with 22 outfits. They also created in-store displays so that the products were shown to their full advantage on the countertop. You could buy a doll for $3, and then you could collect the outfits. So this was a really clever strategy by Mattel. Who was responsible for coming up with this? Well, it was very clever, and I'm going to say it was probably part Ruth Handler and also Carson Roberts Advertising Agency. It was sort of the the Gillette razor blade philosophy where they would practically give you the razor for free, but you had to buy the blades that only fit that particular razor. So you were creating um, the consumerism. You were creating the repeat customer. And it was very it was very clever that they were wise about play pattern. Most dolls until that time were sold in lingerie, and then you bought the dress. But when you got your Barbie, she came in a swimsuit with sunglasses. So instantly you had a play pattern that she could be going to the pool or the beach. You could instantly play with your doll. And then the extra costumes, which were essentially about the same price and in some cases more than the doll, um, you know, those were going to be later additional purchases. And the little child found out about these because tucked inside every one of the Barbie boxes and package outfits was a little illustrated fashion booklet that showed each one of these outfits in detail with the fabulous description. And each one of these outfits carried a name, everything from Evening Splendor to Enchanted Evening and Busy Gal, which created a, 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 an idea for a play pattern that could be played out with your, with your Barbie doll. I know, I remember those booklets for Barbie and for the illustrations on the box. And in many respects, they brought the doll to life. Then when you bought the costume, you were envisioning all that and and a life for the doll. It's a very interesting process because it's all about imagination and play, but it's also very creative. Well, it reflected our the fashions of our time. If you line up a Barbie doll from the very beginning until now, it reflects our fashions, what we were wearing, our hairstyles, the style of our makeup. It's very reflective. And those little booklets are a complete work of art. 
and they did those you know throughout Barbie's history so it was it was the ultimate sort of advertising that whether the parent liked it or not the kid was going to discover one way or another that there was more product available and it was it was sort of a genius marketing tool well of course today There are guidelines set in place in many countries concerning advertising to children. But in the 1950s and 60s, it was a different time. TV advertising brought Barbie dolls straight into children's living rooms. How did parents cope with this type of advertising, marketing these dolls and toys directly to their children? Well, I think this is such a a new sort of moment when this is happening. Television is new. And advertising, as we're seeing it, is, is, is evolving. And I don't really think anyone was paying attention or really looking to govern this until it was a little too late. I think, you know, probably a good decade into it is when you start seeing more um, guidelines and rules being set forth. And it had to do with, you know, sometimes things were sort of false advertising. Something was shown in a commercial working a particular way when in reality, it didn't work that way. And so therefore, you know, you, you get government agencies involved. And so things evolve and change. Well, I suppose when you get that toy home, and it doesn't do what you thought it was going to do when you're a child, it's a very disappointing thing. But we can say definitely from experience, that when you got Barbie home, she did do what was in the advertising and what was in the little booklets. And You could dress her and pose her, and she had houses and cars and an airplane. And wow, she really had a lot of stuff, didn't she? It was really amazing, all the things you could do with Barbie. It was the world of Barbie. (laughs) (laughs) It was the world of Barbie. There was so much, you know, over, over decades, she had so much that created play situations that had, you know, so many fun elements. And my child as well was sort of, you know, populated with multiple Barbies and Barbie product. And I played with my cousin and yes, countless hours were spent um, with the Barbie friendship, which was a miniature version of the United Airlines, you know, 747, you know, that you could unfold on your living room. And I mean, my whole dream of traveling to Europe and flying around sort of started with that, that moment. So um, of playing with that, that Barbie product. <laughs> I love it. Oh, I never had the plane. I used to see it on TV and I really wanted it. But we did have the house, uh, a beautiful mod fold out house with wonderful uh, graphics. I wish I still had it now. The airplane was extraordinary and the country camper and all the other vehicles. There was. But you're right. The imagination of travel and of, of having adventures, it's an extraordinary thing. I totally agree. And you know, the way they advertise these products to the child, it, it sort of set up this, this play pattern with the country camper and being at the beach with the beach buggy. So there were all of these little elements in the advertising that kind of you know, showed the child of sort of how to play with it, but also it's seeded in sort of creating this idea of like one day maybe – It'll be me and a friend in a dune buggy on the beach having a great time. You know, it's it was creating an understanding, you know, the interaction of adults and being a teenager. And I think it was sort of a, a fun way of kind of learning about <laughs> how grownups behave um, 
just by paying attention to TV shows and then acting out that kind of stuff with your dolls. I felt it was a wonderful adventure as a child. And no, I didn't feel I had to have everything. I didn't feel I had to have all the things that she offered. I had the things that suited the play pattern I wanted to envision for my doll. Exactly. I still wish, though, I tell you, there's one thing on my wish list. And when I see pictures of uh, its vintage Barbie's fashion shop, oh, even as an adult lady, I would still like to have that. Because to play out, you know, I love 50s fashion. To play out this early, you know, late 50s, early 60s vision of elegance would be just wonderful. It's the ultimate sort of set for displaying. <laughs> it is the ultimate set. And even as an adult, I could say this would be something I'd love to interact with because it just is so chic. It captures a time. It, it's an amazing piece of pop culture history. Absolutely. And all of those cardboard structures that were done in the early 60s were so amazing. And they do. They capture... You know, as, as Barbie captures the era of fashion, they capture a moment of mid-century furniture and interior. It's, you know, sort of once again, a time capsule of, um, of structures and what interior design was like of that period of time. The, the graphic art and the, the different things that were incorporated and all that, they're just amazing and still really fun to look at today and really interesting to look at today. I wonder, you know, when we think about all this and we think of the wonderful history of Barbie, how those toy buyers who in 1959 dismissed Barbie as too grown up, I wonder how they felt when they saw how successful she was. That had to be a regretful moment. I can only imagine what it would feel like to have been a buyer at Toy Fair in 1959 and turn my nose up at Barbie only to discover that she was an enormously amazing seller off you know she just flew off the shelves and we do know that some of the toy buyers probably lost their job over that because barbie did not appear in the 1959 sears wish book which you know that had to be sort of catastrophic because a lot of barbie was eventually sold through the sears wish booklets or the wish book you have to admit that that had to be a bad move not to order barbie at toy fair that year Wow. So um, how were the original, you know, Barbies back in 1959? Do you know how they were distributed and sold? Was it through independent toy shops? There were a lot of independent toy shops. There were, I, I think that they, I think Montgomery Ward had them in 59. I, you know, I go back and try and in my archive of old advertising and wish books and um, Christmas catalogs and, and that sort of thing from the era trying to determine who was who was smart and who wasn't smart. And there were a lot more independent toy stores in that generation. And I think there had to be some very clever people because once those advertisements rolled out, little girls went into toy shops demanding Barbie. And those who had not ordered it scrambled to try and get them from Mattel. And at that time, Mattel couldn't even keep up with the production. They spent about three years trying to catch up with all of the orders that they had coming in. So we can really tell that the TV advertising for Barbie got the word out and made the demand huge for this doll. Absolutely. Mattel was really smart. They kind of gambled their net worth of the company early on when they started advertising with the Mickey Mouse Club. And I think they really saw that that consistent advertising 
and creative commercials really did exactly what they were expecting and that created children to become their customer and demand you know the Mattel toys and I think that in and of itself was brilliant. So we talked about Barbie reflecting pop culture and in the 70s it's Malibu Barbie which of course uh, it's the age of Farrah Fawcett majors the California lifestyle what was happening in the 1980s with Barbie and advertising? Barbie continued to evolve and at the in the 1980s there was a tremendous amount of what I call product based television shows. There were TV shows like G.I. Joe and Gem and the Holograms, where it was essentially a, a cartoon for a child, but it was based heavily in product. So it was like a 30-minute long commercial for that particular product. Mattel had done some of that with the Masters of the Universe and He-Man and then the She-Ra Princess of Power. Mattel had constantly been pushed for turning Barbie into a cartoon, and Ruth Handler had always resisted that because she didn't want to give Barbie a specific personality. She wanted her to be what the child wanted her to be and how the child would reflect and create her her personality through that doll. However, in the late 80s, they did create a VHS when Barbie and the Rockers came out, and Ruth Handler actually participated in that. And during the 1980s, Mattel launched this whole sort of new ad campaign starting in 1985 with the We Girls Can Do Anything, right, Barbie? Which was sort of a positive role model that was a little bit probably in response to some of the negative press that Barbie had received for like body image and stuff like that. But it was, you know, a lot of positivity and just kind of encouraging that you know, if you dream it, you can do it. And it showcased, you know, Barbie playing sports and little girls that played baseball, played with Barbie. So it was just a very encouraging sort of mantra that lasted for a while. And Barbie collectors to this day love that era and love those commercials. Today, Barbie has her own website. She's on social media and she communicates with audiences be they children or collectors, on all the trending media. She has always reflected the time that she was in, from the early 60s with the television commercials and the different sort of games and things that were created, record albums that were popular in that moment to now with, you know, I follow Barbie on Instagram and it's very clever. It's presented in such an amazing way that, I look forward to seeing those posts. So the modern world is a whole different world for advertising, and it's it's so different than it was in 1959. But just like Barbie has evolved over the last going on 65 years, so has advertising. So it's really interesting just to see the evolution of advertising history through the doll. It is so interesting to see how she communicates with audiences she is now about to make her debut on the big screen. We can't ignore the fact that Barbie is now going to be the subject of an upcoming Hollywood film. I'm very excited about this. Margot Robbie will portray Barbie in the movie that's supposed to think it launches July 23rd of this year. And it looks so amazing. They, I've only seen the teaser thus far and some of the stills. 
I'm very intrigued as to how they're going to bring Barbie to the big screen. Um, a little bit nervous, but I have an amazing feeling that it's going to be pretty magical. Margot Robbie looks fantastic as Barbie. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see Barbie portrayed that way and what interpretation they will make of Ruth Handler's dream doll. And I wonder what Ruth Handler would think seeing Barbie on the big screen. That's something I've kind of pondered because as I said earlier, Ruth was pretty adamant that she didn't want to give Barbie a specific personality. However, they did do videos of Barbie portraying characters in the 90s with the different um, videos that they had done, like Barbie and the Nutcracker. So I think Barbie has kind of evolved with the times and you know, there has been some sort of personality given. So I think it's sort of a natural sort of flow to kind of end up with this. But I'm I'm just curious how it will be portrayed. I I think Ruth Handler would be pleased to see that it's gonna be a, a feature length film. I think I think she would be very happy with this. So I'm excited to kind of see this bit of history added to the Barbie doll. I think it's a wonderful development. And I, I too think that although she always thought of Barbie as something that children should put their own spin on, I think even when children go and see the movie and see the dolls portrayed as people, I, I still think they will put their own spin on their, they'll go home and play Barbie the movie and do something different. <laughs> I agree. I, you know, I think it's going to be, once again, creating a play pattern. Barbie is always a creative vehicle, and she's something people have a lot of fun with. Do you have any insider knowledge about the movie, Bradley, that you can share with us? I don't. I wish I did. And, you know, having watched the trailer, I have, you know, fixated on it and have kind of gone through that trailer like probably a hundred times, freeze framing on each one of the stills and just kind of looking at the sets and the costumes and... I wish I had some insider information, but I can't wait. I'm looking for the full-length trailer to drop, and we'll continue this discussion hopefully in the future when we get to see this movie. Well, it's wonderful. When we think about our discussion today, we started with Barbie on TV during the Mickey Mouse Club, and we're ending with Barbie on film with major motion picture stars. I mean, it's quite a journey, isn't it? It really is. You know. I mean, look how far we've come, baby. It's kind of amazing that a toy company like Mattel that was just sort of a mom and pop operation would become this enormous corporation and that Barbie is probably one of, if not the best selling toy of all time. I mean, she's she's iconic. She is iconic and she captures every decade. She captures a snapshot of life. Even though it's an aspirational lifestyle, it's still a snapshot of that time. And it's a marvelous pop culture moment. Now, Bradley, I believe you're going to be presenting a program at the Strong National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York, where you're going to be exploring another toy and pop culture icon. Can you tell us about that? I am. Um, The Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York is such an amazing place. And I was invited to be a part of their Meet the Collector series. And I'm going to be talking about my childhood dolls that were created by Mattel that were called the Sunshine Family. And they are 
um, smaller than Barbie, but were sort of this sort of, you know, of the moment, 1973 to 77 era doll that was rooted in sort of that outdoorsy life and being creative and crafty and each little doll came with like an instruction booklet to kind of create accessories for them. So it was a little less conspicuous consumerism than Barbie, but just as much fun. This is what's important. Dolls are such fun and they're so creative. They have this wonderful place in our hearts, especially our childhood dolls. The Strong National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York, is a fabulous place to visit. They do so many different toys and childhood memories. And you can explore their collection online, too, as I have, all the way from Vienna. So I only wish I could be there to see your presentation. But I know it's going to make a lot of people very happy and bring back a lot of great memories and also share a special moment in time with new audiences and the children of today. Bradley Justice Yarborough, thank you so much for sharing this really interesting insight into the world of Barbie and advertising and her career to date on film. Thank you so much for having me, Louisa. It's always a pleasure. Well, it's always a joy to share this time with you and to share all these fantastic memories of Childhood Barbie. Thank you, Bradley. Thank you. Bradley will be at the Strong Museum of Play on Wednesday, April 12th from 6 to 8.30 p.m. To find out more about this event and to see all the commercials we discussed in the podcast, go to our website, www.dollpodcast.com. We look forward to welcoming you the next time on the Doll Podcast. So subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram to get all our latest news.